Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Barry Strauss, a Bryce and Edith M. Bauman professor in humanistic studies at Cornell University, and the author of many best-selling books, including his most recent work, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. Which brings me to episode CCI, Actium. In 31 BCE, one of the largest naval battles in the ancient world took place. More than 600 ships, almost 200,000 men, and one woman. The forces of Octavian, Antony, and Cleopatra would square off for control of the Mediterranean, and ultimately the Roman Empire. Here's Barry Strauss. So the Battle of Actium took place on September 2nd, 31 BCE, on the northwestern coast of what is now Greece. Some will be familiar with the island of Corfu, ancient Corsaira, and it's somewhat south of there. Uh, it took place just outside the entrance to the Gulf of Ambracia in the Ionian Sea along the coast. The two sides in the battle, the two main players were Antony and Octavian. They were the competitors, the rivals for control of the Roman world. After the death of Julius Caesar and the war against the assassins, the so-called liberators, Octavian and Antony were the two giants. There was a triumvirate, officially, a three-man commission to govern Rome. The third member of the triumvirate was a man named Marcus Lepidus, who never had as much power as the other two and was eventually shunted aside, leaving Antony and Octavian. Octavian uh, commanded the west from his base in Rome, and Antony commanded the east, at first from a base in Athens, and then ultimately from a base in Alexandria, Egypt. And the third player in this, although I'm interested to know how much you'd say she is a player, is Cleopatra, who has an involvement in this, doesn't she? Absolutely. Yes, so Cleopatra is the queen of Egypt, and she is a real power broker. We have a misconception about Cleopatra. We often think of her as just a sex symbol. Shakespeare, Antony and Cleopatra, or perhaps from Hollywood. But the real Cleopatra was a politician, a stateswoman, a queen, a brilliant woman, a person of great strategic insight and great ambition. She was also the mistress to two of the most powerful men in Rome in turn. First, Julius Caesar, and then Mark Antony. And by the time of the Battle of Actium, uh, she was Antony's uh, mistress. Perhaps they were legally married. We're not really sure. They had three children. Uh, She'd also had a son by Julius Caesar, although there's some question as to whether he really was Caesar's son. In all likelihood, he, he was. She was also Antony's banker. Egypt was probably the wealthiest single place in the Mediterranean world in this period, enormously rich because of the agricultural resources as a result of the annual flooding of the Nile. And as monarch of Egypt, Cleopatra sat on a tremendous treasury, and she was able to fund Antony's forces. And Antony needed a lot of funds, first because he built 
a state-of-the-art navy, and navies were very expensive. And by the way, Cleopatra's naval architects in Alexandria, some of the best in the world, were the ones who designed this fleet in all likelihood. And Antony needed a lot of money, secondly, because he'd lost a lot. He'd lost a lot of men and material in his attempt to fight and win a campaign against the Parthian Empire. It was a disaster, a great loss for him. So Cleopatra was the one who rebuilt his forces. And, and so as his banker, she had tremendous say. She also provided a significant number of ships. There were 500 warships in Antony's fleet, and 60 of them were Cleopatra's. They were the Egyptian fleet. So very important person. Why was Antony and Octavian fighting specifically? I mean, this seems to have been on the surface, the way they presented it to Rome, a very good and steady alliance between the two men. But was it the fact that they were just both too powerful to play nicely? Pretty much. I mean, the Romans didn't need any excuse for rivals to go against each other. It had happened again and again and again in Roman history. Just to take some of the main examples, Marius and Sulla and Julius Caesar and Gnaeus Pompey. Nobody was surprised when these two dynasts turn on each other. In fact, they had nearly come to blows several times before. In fact, they had come to blows. Uh, shortly after Caesar's assassination, Octavian joined the forces of the Senate and in theory of the assassins. And he was part of an army that attacked and defeated Mark Antony in northern Italy outside of Mutina. A few months later, Octavian turned around uh, he betrayed his partners and joined Antony, and the two of them joined forces. But several times over the years between then, that was 43 BC and 31, several times Octavian and Antony had nearly made war on each other. As big as the Roman world was, it wasn't big enough for these two men, each with enormous ambitions. Octavian said when he was still a teenager that he would settle for nothing less than having all the honors, which in Latin would also mean holding all the offices that his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, had held. Antony never expressed as much of an ambition, but he had Caesar's mistress, and he wanted to achieve what Caesar had attempted to achieve when he was assassinated. He wanted to defeat the Parthians. So it's clear that Antony as well wanted to be the next Caesar. And this is really what the two of them were fighting over. Who is going to be the next Caesar? Who's going to be the big dog in Rome? So when you get to Actium, this is primarily a naval battle, but there is a component on the land as well. Yes. So before we get into that and what's involved there, I'm just wondering, can you take me through why Cleopatra is there specifically? And if it's unusual for a woman to take part in a war so directly? It's very unusual for a woman to take part directly in a war. We have some prior examples in antiquity. We have Artemisia in uh, Xerxes' armada that went against Athens. We have Queen Teuta of the Illyrians, but they're not many. They're not many examples. Later on, we'd have Boudicca. But why was Cleopatra there? Well, she was a monarch. She was the most important of Rome's allied monarchs in the East, and Antony had several of these monarchs who were in his forces. So she had every right to be there. As a woman, it's unusual that she's there. But she had very good reason to want to be there and not leave it to one of her generals. 
for one thing, her entire future depended on the outcome of this war. For another thing, she controlled the money and a tremendous amount of the treasury of Egypt was actually with them in the fleet. They needed it to pay the men. But probably the most important thing is that she didn't really trust Antony. Several times in the past, Antony had nearly come to blows with Octavian, and then the two of them had settled things. They were both expert diplomats, and Octavian specialized in getting people to betray their allies. He had done this again and again in his career. When the war began, Antony and Octavian were technically brothers-in-law. Antony was married to Octavian's sister, Octavia, and they had two daughters. So Cleopatra had good reason to worry that before the actual fighting came about, that Octavian would find a way to get Antony to agree to once again make peace between the two sides. And Octavian, who was extremely clever in Machiavellian, Machiavellian before Machiavelli, Octavian had not declared war on Antony. He had declared war on Cleopatra and Egypt. Now, why? Uh, For a couple of reasons. For one reason, and the main reason, is that Octavian had promised that he would never go to civil war again in Rome. He had fought in several civil war battles, most recently against Pompey's son, Sextus Pompey. Had he declared war on Antony, he would have been going back on his vow not to fight another civil war. Now, people in Rome weren't stupid. And I personally doubt that many people bought his propaganda, that Cleopatra was a threat to Rome, that Cleopatra had unmanned Antony. That's the party line, and that's the line he used. And it certainly was a better casus belli than saying, I'm just going to war against my fellow Roman. But still, it was not a popular war. Do we know if Antony wanted Cleopatra there, or did he want her elsewhere during this? Well, when the Navy meets, the various forces come together at Ephesus on the west coast of Anatolia. And one of Antony's most important allies, a man named Mahenobarbus, demands that Cleopatra go home. You know, probably he says things like, it's not appropriate to have a woman here. It's not appropriate to have an Egyptian here. And he might have been thinking that Antony's best move was to invade Italy. And certainly it would have been much more difficult to invade Italy with Cleopatra present than without her there. The reason it would be difficult is that I don't think Italians would have really liked the idea of the Queen of Egypt being part of the force that invaded their country. And Antony at first agreed. He agreed to send Cleopatra home. But Cleopatra went to another of Antony's generals. This is someone who she had bribed handsomely. And he got Antony to reconsider uh, and to agree to allow Cleopatra to stay. So Antony certainly had considered sending Cleopatra home. He got outmaneuvered there. So before we talk directly about the battle, it's probably a good thing to highlight how hard it is to get information about this battle that one isn't bias and two that isn't written much later i mean the best sources for this seem to be plutarch and cassius dio who are hundreds of years after the event that's right yeah it's highly problematic so 
we have Victor's history by and large. You know, we have history from the point of view of Octavian, who uh, is about to become the first Roman emperor, Augustus. He controls the narrative. We get very little from Antony's side of the story. Augustus wrote memoirs. He published memoirs. They don't exist anymore. We have about a dozen or so quotations from them. We know that Plutarch read them and was influenced by them. Probably uh, Cassius Dio read them as well. There were other books published at the time that no longer exist that would have told us something about the battle. And we hope they influence what sources we have. But the sources we have are all later, as you say. Still, it's not completely hopeless. There are some quotations from Antony's writings, which are useful. And we have a lot of coin evidence, quite a bit of coin evidence, and that's quite valuable. We also have archaeological evidence. Near the place where the battle took place, the later victory city, Nicopolis, that Octavian creates after the battle, he turned the place where he had his headquarters into a shrine, a great monument commemorating the victory. And the monument's only been scientifically excavated during my lifetime. In fact, I feel as if I was present at the creation because when I was a graduate student in Greece in 1978, I visited Actium for the first time. And with me were two people who had gone to devote their careers to studying this monument. Konstantinos Zakos, a Greek archaeologist, uh, who is publishing the sculpture and the architecture of the monument. And William Murray, an American ancient historian, who studied with great care the cuttings in the monument where rams from Antony's fleet were put up. And by studying the size of the cuttings, we can see the different kinds of rams that were in the fleet. And they tell us a fair amount about the kinds of ships that Antony had. Uh, also, through the work of Bill Murray and others, we know a lot more about uh, Hellenistic naval uh, tactics and strategy, and that also helps us put the battle in perspective. Mm. So, what do we know then, or what do the sources tell us about you know how many ships, how many men are involved, and who is the better equipped of the two armies? At the beginning of the campaign, Antony has more ships. He's got a fleet of 500 warships. And as I said, they're state-of-the-art. These ships are built to have reinforced prows which means they are capable of prow-to-prow ramming. You can attack the enemy head-on without worry about your ram breaking off when you attack the enemy ship. That gives them an advantage. Most of his ships are probably quadrireams and quinqueremes. That's five rowers to a room. These are pretty standard warships in Roman and Hellenistic navies. But he has a certain number, a small number of very large ships, including a few tens. The purpose of these ships is probably to use to break into fortified cities. With these ships, it should be possible, though not easy, for Antony to attack one of the fortified cities in southern Italy, like Brundisium or Tarentum. If he can do that, he's made a giant step towards defeating Octavian and conquering Italy. Octavian has a fleet of about 400 ships, also probably quinqueremes and quadremes. There'll be some triremes in these two fleets as well. That's the first look at these fleets. But as you know, you don't judge navies just by the numbers of ships. There are other factors as well. So for Antony's fleet, 
He's got all these ships, but he can't deploy them all in northwestern Greece. And the reason is that he's got to defend a supply line that stretches for about a thousand miles all the way back to Egypt. Greece simply does not produce enough food to feed all the men in Antony's forces. The only way to feed them is to bring supplies from the east. Of course, these supplies are going to be coming on merchant ships, but you need to have some more ships to defend the route. So that's one problem that he's got, and it's got a real vulnerability. Another factor is that Antony's men don't have the experience in naval battle that the other side does. He's got a few captains who are quite experienced and quite good. Hannibarbus, as I mentioned, Sosius, these are both experienced naval captains. But the really impressive thing is what Octavian's got. He's got Agrippa, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, his boyhood friend, an excellent field commander, proving himself first on land and then at sea in the war against Sextus Pompey. It's not too much to say that Agrippa wins the war for Octavian, the war against Sextus Pompey. And his navy is very experienced. They fight two major naval battles in this conflict. They also have the experience of taking fortified places. Turns out to be very important in the Actium campaign. And then go on to fight a smaller but significant campaign against the Illyrians, so in the northeastern Adriatic Sea. As a result of all this, they're very experienced, they're battle-hardened. They have an advantage when it comes to fighting at sea that Antony's forces lack. Hmm. And why were they at Actium specifically? I would say that in an ideal world, if your goal is to cross the sea uh, from Greece to Italy, the place you should have as your base is Dyrrhachium, which was a Roman fortified port figured in the civil war between Caesar and Pompey. In modern Albania, the modern city of Dures, probably by this point, Octavian had helped himself to Dyrrhachium. There's lots of reasons to think that, even though no source specifically says that. And it really wasn't an option for Antony. So he had to have his forces further south. Actium is a very good base for your ships because it's got the sheltered harbor of the Ambracian Gulf. And it's not too far south of a good crossing point from Greece to Italy. Uh, Actium is far enough north that that's conceivable, but it's also far enough south that it allows Antony's fleet to cover the route to Italy and to be there to help on the supply route if necessary. Antony and Cleopatra, they moved their fleet to northwestern Greece in the autumn of 32 BC. But they themselves winter further south in the city of Patre, modern Patras, uh, in the northwestern corner of the Peloponnesus. It looks as if they decide not to invade Italy and instead to stay on the defensive in Greece to wait for the enemy to attack them. And then I think that Antony's ideal is to get Octavian to leave his camp and to fight a battle on land, but it doesn't work out for him. Mm. And before it even comes to a confrontation, Antony and Cleopatra are losing troops, they're losing ships, and they're also suffering from it seems malaria, they're suffering from disease as well. So this is a battle that they don't have time to wait on. Right. So Actium is a campaign as well as a battle. And six months before the Battle of Actium in March of 31 BC, Agrippa led a significant contingent of Octavian's fleet across the Ionian Sea and took by storm from the sea the 
most important uh, supply base, and that is Methoni in the southwestern corner of the Peloponnesus. That gives Agrippa a base on the eastern side of the Ionian, and he uses it to attack the grain ships coming to Antony and Cleopatra. Ultimately, he takes Patra, takes the city from them. He even attacks Corinth and briefly holds that as well. And finally, takes the island of Lucas, the modern Lefkada in Greece, which denies an important base to Antony and gives Octavian a very important and strategic harbor. So Antony and Cleopatra are having real problems supplying their troops. Octavian crosses over from Italy with the rest of his forces, and they set up a camp north of the entrance to the Ambracian Gulf. So Actium is a site just south of the entrance to the Gulf. Antony, with their ships safely sheltered in the harbor of the Gulf, Octavian puts his headquarters about five miles to the north in the hills, uh, north of the entrance to the Gulf. He doesn't have a great harbor there at first, but then when Agrippa captures the island of Lucas, just south of there, he has an excellent harbor. Antony is trying to get them to fight a land battle, but Octavian steadfastly refuses. Antony tries to cut off water supplies to Octavian, but he fails. And the situation is going on for several months. Antony's men are short of supplies. They're hungry. They're getting sick. And Octavian is very successful in convincing some of Antony's allies to defect to him. So by August of 31 BC, the situation is desperate for Antony. And he realizes that he has no choice except to leave. The two options, one is to march across country to a port in the eastern part of Greece to make his way back to his base in Egypt from there, and the other is to go by sea. Antony, perhaps persuaded by Cleopatra, opts to go by sea. It seems to be the better bet of the two, the safer way of getting his men out, and and what's almost more important than his men is the treasure, the Egyptian treasure. They need it to pay for perhaps building a new fleet, paying for new soldiers, somehow living to fight again another day. And Octavian desperately wants that money because he needs to pay his own men. Octavian's short of money. Antony's got plenty of money because he's got the Egyptian treasure. I shouldn't say he has plenty of money, but he's in better shape financially than Octavian is. Octavian really wants that Egyptian money, pay his veterans and settle them without having domestic turmoil in Rome. Antony knows at this point that it is unlikely that he's going to be able to win a battle against Octavian and Agrippa. And so he prepares his ships to flee, to fight and win if they can, but to be prepared to flee. So do they burn ships before they leave? Is that part of the strategy? Yes. They don't have enough men to man all of their warships. So they actually burn some of them uh, before the battle, which is Mm. really quite desperate. Nonetheless, it is not a done deal. And Octavian is not absolutely sure that he can defeat Antony. In fact, Octavian's original plan is to let Antony and Cleopatra go and then to follow them to the east, to take control of Greece, to take control of as many provinces as they can. He's confident that the dominoes will fall now that so many men have joined him 
and to corner the enemy in Egypt. But Agrippa convinces him, no, we've got to fight. And so what can you tell me about the battle itself? Is it a long undertaking and how does it unfold? The battle takes place on the 2nd of September in the year 31 BCE. The two sides load their ships up before the battle. What's unusual about Antony's ships is he's got the masts and the sails on the ship. Normally, in a naval battle, you roll up the sails and you take the masts off because you want the ships to be light and to be prepared for ramming and maneuvering. But Antony and Cleopatra want to be able to sail south. They know that typically in the afternoon, a northwestern breeze blows up in this part of the world. And if they have sails, they can take advantage of the breeze and go south very rapidly. Nonetheless, they haven't given up on a naval battle. The two sides get their fleets in place probably about 10 a.m. in the morning. Antony's fleet extends for about three and a half miles. Either end of the fleet is close to land. They're about a half mile away from the shore. Octavian keeps his fleet about a mile away from Antony's fleet, further out at sea. The advantage of that is that it means that if Antony is going to attack the enemy fleet, Uh, His men have to row for a mile before they get there. And they're going to be pretty tired by the time they have to row for a mile to get to the enemy fleet. Cleopatra has 60 ships. With 230 ships in total, 60 ships is a significant, significant component of this. Her 60 ships are held in reserve. They're behind the front lines. And probably around noon, the battle begins. Antony does attempt to charge and to ram the enemy ships, but he fails. Not long after the fighting has begun, the wind has begun to change. It started to blow from the north. And at this point, Cleopatra shocks everyone by making ready to leave. Uh, She unfurls her sails and she and her 60 ships simply break through the line or they sail through the line and they turn. You've got to go west out to sea at a certain point because the island of Lucas is in the way to the south. Once you get a bit far out to sea, you can then turn south and head out of there. The sources say that she does this because she's a coward, because she's a woman, and because she's an Egyptian. She was actually a Macedonian Egyptian. She may have been part Egyptian. There's some reason to think that. She's certainly a descendant of the Macedonians. I myself don't buy it. I think this was a prearranged plan that if Antony fails to make a dent in the enemy fleet, that Cleopatra will escape. Antony leaves his flagship. He leaves it. He goes onto a smaller boat. He makes his way onto Cleopatra's flagship and he joins her. And the 60 Egyptian ships and maybe a dozen of Antony's ships successfully head south. They're out of there. There's no way that Octavian and Agrippa's ships can catch them because they're rowing. They don't have their sails. The battle continues. Antony's men are not ready to give up. Either they don't know or don't believe that their chief has abandoned them. And ultimately, the only way for Octavian and Agrippa to win the battle is to use flame arrows. They set the enemy's ships on fire and send a lot of them to the bottom, killing quite a few of the enemy. The Octavian-friendly account, according to Augustus's memoirs, 6,000 men are killed in the enemy fleet. He didn't really want to admit that because these are mostly Romans, and it's not something you want to tell the Roman public. 
A hostile source says that's about double that, the number of casualties in Antony's fleet. And there would have been very few casualties in Octavian's fleet. This goes on for a couple of hours. And when the sun goes down that night, Octavian's still not 100% sure that he's won. He doesn't feel safe about going ashore. He doesn't go ashore until the next morning uh, when it's clear that this has been a great victory. So even though he outnumbers the enemy, it's not a sure thing. But the land contingent, there's not a battle there at all. Octavian seems to be able to talk them over at that point. The great negotiator negotiates them out of it. He promises them that... There'll be no reprisals. They'll be able to join his army and they will be among those who will be rewarded with land. They take the deal. That's a good deal. Yeah, it's a good deal. And the only problem is paying for it. (laughs) There's an Egyptian treasury for that that he's got to get to. They have to get it. Mm, Yeah, yeah. he's got to get it. I'm a bit conflicted about whether it was planned to flee or it was a betrayal by Cleopatra. It seems that Antony might have been providing a diversion so Cleopatra and those 60 ships could get away if he left with them. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I don't think he'd completely given up hope of defeating the enemy, but he leaves pretty quickly. Mm. It's a one-shot deal. You know, they throw the dice, they fail, and then he leaves. And it should be said, it's got to be said, that this is a very un-Roman thing to do. Antony is disobeying the protocols for what a Roman general is supposed to do. As a good Roman general, he's supposed to stay and fight, if necessary, to the death, stay with his men. He abandons them. He leaves them. And he never recovers from that. He's never able to live that down. At this point, I'm just curious as to how important you believe the Battle of Actium is. What place it held for the Romans. I mean, this is the last major resistance to... Octavian, and therefore what will become the rule of Augustus and the establishment of the Caesars. Right. So it's significant, I guess, from that aspect. Right. And also you wrote a quite impressive book about it. So I'm just wondering how important you see this battle to be. Yeah, I think it's very important. One small correction, if I might. Actium was a campaign. It was a war. And although the battle itself wasn't all that impressive. The campaign was very impressive. And it was no small thing for Octavian and Agrippa to defeat this armada of 500 warships. It's pretty likely that Octavian will win within the next year, as he does. It's not 100% likely, but pretty likely. I think that the history of the Roman world would have been very different if the war had gone the other way, if Antony and Cleopatra had won. If that had been the case, I think the Roman Empire would have turned eastward. And I think that Alexandria would have played the role of Constantinople 300 years before Constantinople. It would have been a kind of second capital. And Alexandria, I think, would have gone back to some of its glory in the earlier Ptolemaic era. Money, power would have flowed eastward to Alexandria. Antony and his successors would have been much more interested in conquering Parthia and conquering Mesopotamia than the Romans were in conquering Germany and Britain. Those may never have become part of the Roman Empire. Obviously, most of Germany never did, but Britain does. We don't know if that would have happened. 
what we call the Roman Empire, as you know, was always in some ways a Greco-Roman Empire. It was a condominium of Latin culture and Greek culture. It would have become even more Greek, in my opinion, if Antony and Cleopatra had won the Actium War. We today might be speaking a language that was fundamentally Greek at its roots instead of a language that was Latin at its roots. Christianity in the West would, I think, have been more like Orthodox Christianity than like Latin Christianity. So I think the consequences for world history and, and culture could have been really quite significant if the Actium War had gone the other way, if Antony had figured out some way to invade Italy and defeat Octavian, which was not out of the question, in my opinion. Yeah, a real divergent point. I hadn't thought of it from that angle. So when you go and visit the site now, you've talked about the temple, but the big part of this, I guess, is a naval battle. Is there a lot of evidence on the landscape of the site? Can you get a sense that this is something significant? <laughs> well, you know, with naval battles, there's usually not much to see at sea. <laughs> but if you go there, first of all, there's a wonderful museum in the modern city of Prevaza. And the museum has some artifacts from the battle, including coins that were buried on land and discovered afterwards. We can imagine that some of Antony's men buried their coins before the battle, not knowing what would happen to them. There's some really nice sculpture of the participants in the battle. So that's quite interesting to see. Mm. And then if you drive north about four or five miles, you come to the site of Nicopolis, Victory City, the city that... Octavian had built after the battle. There's quite a lot to see there because it was a prosperous place in the Roman world. And finally, in the hills above Nicopolis, there is the site of Octavian's headquarters. We can stand exactly where he stood on the dawn before the battle and you get the view that he got. It's a wonderful view, really a very impressive view of the Ambracian Gulf and the Ionian Sea and the islands and hills around it. It's a beautiful place, by the way, really. It was so exciting for me to be able to go there by ship and to arrive there at dawn and to see the mountains of the interior, the mountains of Epiros rising in the distance. Right now, you can see most of the inscription that Octavian put up celebrating his victory after the battle. It's in Latin, and you can read large parts of it. But you can also see the cuttings where some of the rams from Antony and Cleopatra's ships were displayed. And with the aid of graphics there, you can imagine what that was like. Uh, I hope that ultimately there will be uh, a visitor center there uh, to recreate this, what was originally a magnificent monument. It was one of the really great monuments of the Roman world, and in some ways the founding monument of, of Augustus's empire, not in Rome, but over in Greece. That was Barry Strauss, Bryce and Edith M. Baumer Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. Barry Strauss's book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra and Octavian at Actium, is available now. You can find out more at his website, barrystrauss.com, and Barry has his own podcast, well worth a listen. It's called Antiquitas. Emperors of Rome can be found on any readily accessible podcasting platform. You can like us on Facebook, and for now, while it still exists, you can follow us on Twitter. Barry is at Barry Strauss, I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.